This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. This week, I'm joined by our Asia-Pacific editor, Damon Evans, and digital journalist, Hamish Penman. Hamish is just back from Manchester, the Global Offshore Wind Conference. Fun times at... At Manchester Airport, Hamish, it sounded like a bit of a debacle. Yeah, me and Manchester Airport really don't agree. Last time I was there, I think I had a five-hour delay, two-hour delay this time. Um, it's not the world's greatest airport either. It's not kitted out with lots of amenities to pass the time. So, yeah, no, it was a, a very good trip um, up to that point. There's something about going to these conferences. I think when I had a similar uh, issue in Norwich when I went for the Beast from the East in 2018. How about, how about you, Damon? Have you, you're not having to deal with any of the travel disruption chaos that we're getting here in the UK, presumably. Not yet, no. I mean, I had a, a fairly straightforward trip to Singapore recently and um, yeah, no, no complaints over here. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Well, I'm meant to be going on holiday via Heathrow, via BA in the Ouch. not so distant future, which is looking... Uh, a little bit challenging now, so yeah, that'll be fun. Anyway, so so Hamish is flying into Aberdeen this week. Also flying in is uh, Rishi Sunak, Dishi Rishi in the Dean. Um, but first, uh, I think we'll come up. We are coming up to our uh, July safety supplement, which will be printed in the the Press and Journal very soon. So. In the spirit of that, we will go to to Damon first. Uh, the politicians can can wait a bit. I think uh, Damon, a rather. Serious sounding oil spill off uh, Australia. Yeah, it's it's kind of concerning. Um, on June seventeenth, Friday, June seventeenth, uh, Jadestone Energy, a, a London listed independent company which operates the Montara oil field offshore Australia, um, noticed oil on the surface of of the water near the FPSO and um, they determined it was coming the the incident happened when oil was being transferred between two tanks on on the FPSO uh, the Montara Ventura I believe it's called and it's about this this FPSO is about 30 years old Mm. uh, 32 years old sorry it was built in 1990 Mm. (laughs) and um and um, th- so this week we've had the offshore regulator from Australia, Nopsema. They've been out to the FPSO. They've been to check out what's going on. Um, initially, Jade Stone detected a hole in one of the tanks by sending down an ROV. And they said that they estimated three to five cubic meters of oil had been spilled. And they've, they've put a, a temporary plug in to plug the hole. Um, after the offshore regulator went out, they released a report and they they issued their uh, slapped a prohibition notice on Jade Stone Energy. Jade Stone had obviously already stopped production, but that notice means that, that they can't continue until they get the all clear from the, the regulator. But the regulator remained um, concerned about, and I quote, an immediate and significant threats to the environment. Uh, as the structural integrity of the F- FPSO is at risk of failure. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know what you guys know about... Doesn't sound great, does it? No. It's ominous. Yeah. So um, that that's not particularly good. And obviously the shareholders agreed, I think, prior to that, the Jade Stone share price collapsed about 20% on Monday on the initial announcement from Jade Stone. Mm. Um, it's... Um, but it's it's not all bad news. I mean, <laughs> Jadestone have been improving the, the tanks and they say they've been spending a lot of money on it. So, uh, you know, it appears that, that they've already been improving the uh, inverted commas integrity of the, the tanks, but maybe maybe not all of them. And um, the, the regulator goes on to say that... Um, 
Although the regulator said, based on this known failure, it is now reasonable to conclude that the structural integrity of the remaining cargo oil tanks is uncertain, um, which is interesting because presumably they know that Jade Stone have spent some money trying to, for want of a better word, renovate or mm-hmm. improve the integrity of the of the tanks. Um, anyway, so now they've got a, a prohibition notice slapped on them until this these structural issues have been rectified and the risk of further spill has been mitigated. Uh, investigations into the root cause of the accident are ongoing and further enforcement or compliance actions may be necessary, noted the regulator. But uh, as you pointed out, Alistair, this isn't the first kind of incident <laughs> that, that, that I suppose this field is... Um, or, or Jadestone, as the operator of this field, has uh, experienced. Um, uh, Jadestone received an occupational health and safety improvement notice last September when a worker dropped an object on his ankle and needed to be medevaced from the platform. And that same month, another worker got burned from a boiler but, but was not medevaced. And in March, Jadestone... Presu- Sorry, yeah. yeah. I presume that it couldn't have been that serious if you get burned from a boil if you get boiled if you're if, you, if a man is boiled alive uh that's not exactly what happened but you know he must have been fairly non-serious if if he didn't get medevaced but it sounds it sounds awful yeah i mean maybe it's just maybe he just burned his hand so let's be clear we don't exactly know the full details here yeah and um and it's probably a minor incident. So, yeah, let's let's be be fair to Jade Stone before their PR team bangs on my door from London <laughs> again. <laughs> they're, they're, they're doing a good job. If you're listening, Jade Stone, they, they deserve all that money. I, li- um, I, loved, I love that. Let's be fair to them. They are renovating these tanks. Uh, <laughs> um, sorry, how- right, I'm, I'm totally um, de- defeating your attempts to be uh, impartial here, David. Sorry. Continue. Well, I, I shouldn't be, but I won't, <laughs> I won't go into that. But And then uh, reportedly Jade Stone had... A, a, a direction over corrosion concerns from the offshore regulator in March and the regulator remained unhappy with the level of work undertaken by the Singapore-based upstream player to improve the situation on the aging platform. Now that kind of rings alarm bells to me, like corrosion concerns, now we've had a hole in the bottom of the tank, that, that seems to dovetail. I mean, I'm not an expert, but <laughs> it seems perhaps perhaps that hole was caused by corrosion. Well, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? We don't know that. Just to be clear, yeah. I mean, there's a we've maybe to jump in slightly that we have had cases in the North Sea. Obviously, we've got rather old vessels out there. Uh, we had um, not too long ago uh, the Foynhaven FPSO. Um, it's kind of west of Shetland, very uh, harsh water conditions there. I think they had like a two foot long crack in the hull uh, after a raft of safety issues and they just decided, nope, I think that's it. Let's call it a day and take it off for scrapping. So, uh, yeah. Was that the regulator or the operator that decided to scrap it? I think, uh, well, well, well. Um, So it was a a a BP oil field um, and it was owned by TK. Uh, so BP effectively, you know, used the FPSO that was owned and operated, I think. Well, owned by TK, operated by Altera, but I'm getting into things. Um, the regulator, I'm assuming, without having to make too much of a jump here, probably had a few strong conversations about the the worthiness of this vessel um, after the number of HSE issues we saw. And then this, I think the crack in the hull was probably the probably the last straw. But as far as the decision to take it off field, I believe that... Uh, or certainly publicly, that seemed to come top down from BP. Um, 
And obviously, it would have had to have been agreed by the various parties involved, including HSC. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it sounds like this company has been investing, as you say, in 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 the the FPSO in question. But I mean, brass tacks. I mean, is it likely that they'll have to look at another development option, or or can 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 an old FPSO learn new tricks and and get uh, a, a strong safety kind of seaworthiness case again? It's a good question. Um, I mean, they're looking to spend. Jade Stone said they're looking to spend about two to three million dollars to to repair the, the crude oil tank, um, and their obviously their production guidance is going to be in the lower range this year, about fifteen fifteen and a half thousand barrels of oil equivalent per day. Um, but the other thing I should probably mention, I mean, you guys might not be aware, but this was the scene, this field of one of the worst disasters in. Uh, the oil and gas industry history in this part of the world. The Montara field is uh, infamous. Um, it had a, when Thailand's PTTEP operated the field in 2009, there was an oil spill totaling some 2,000 barrels of oil per day. It was the largest environmental disaster of its kind in Australian waters. And um, it was leaking for 74 days. And um, there's some. Gosh. There was an explosion and uncontrollable spill, basically, and they struggled to plug the well. And the oil reached as far as Indonesia, and um, the spill has become the subject of a, a vast legal action case from Indonesian seaweed farmers, who um, actually, I think, earlier this year or late last year, were awarded two hundred sixty million dollars worth of damages. Although PTTEP is is, um, I think, appealing against that. Mm, gosh, right. But yeah, that was a major kind of incident. So, so when oil spill in Montara came up again, it's kind of, you know, rings all these these bells of history. And um, yeah, but this doesn't appear to be as bad. No, of course. I mean, yeah, if we had if we had a, if we had a similar incident in kind of the Piper Field in uh, in the North Sea, I'm sure we'd be doing uh, something very similar. So. Yeah, gosh. Well, it sounds like the uh, safety regulator in Australia does have uh, some uh, work on its hands, as, as does this, uh, this jade stone. But uh, I think for now we will we will park that there and move on to something uh, totally different. And uh, the Chancellor's visit up to Aberdeen this week. Geothermal has been identified as a key technology in the provision of sustainable energy. It's not dependent on weather conditions, and geothermal power plants can supply baseload electricity. And geothermal can also harness the skills and technology developed in the oil and gas sector to help drive the transition and shift to net zero. It offers a huge untapped energy source that has potential to drive up to 20% of the UK's electricity and all of the country's heating demand, making it an area that should not be ignored. For the first session of this new series to be held on the 29th of June, Energy Voices teamed up with Xpro, an expert in geothermal, to showcase the potential of the technology to reshape the energy mix, enhance security of supply, and advance the just transition from oil and gas to sustainable energy. Register free at trackinggeothermal.com to join our virtual audience and hear from an expert panel as they discuss what the technology is, why it's important, and what's next for the sector. Okay, so we had uh, we had Dishy Rishi up in Aberdeen for a photo opportunity. Uh, sorry, no, uh, to discuss the dreaded windfall tax in Aberdeen this week. Uh, I'm not a tax expert, but I would question how much you're going to get done over a 40-minute roundtable with industry leaders when it comes to the complexities of uh, taxation laws. But maybe I'm being cynical. Uh, the the kind of photo op Q and A session at the NZTC took about an hour, uh, I believe, as well. So that kind of 
tells you a little something from the juxtaposition there. But uh, the Chancellor was up in Aberdeen this week. Uh, he has had some criticism, as you know, over this uh, energy profits levy, the windfall tax, as it's uh, called. Um, one of those criticisms is the suggestion there has not been enough consultation with industry, and certainly there wasn't in the lead up to it. I think everyone was, well, it was obviously a lot of discussion about it in the background, but it sounds like in terms of direct consultation with the industry, there was not enough of it. And obviously this windfall tax was imposed last month. Um, so if, if one was to be very cynical, um, one might say that the chance was perhaps, you know, showing himself to be talking to the industry now, but perhaps there are questions on the substance of that and the outcomes of that. So for those, yeah, for those that don't know, windfall tax announced last month uh, tackling the cost of living crisis, which is a very real issue and uh, an issue that does need to be addressed. It's going to put a, an extra 25% levy on the profits of North Sea oil and gas companies. That takes the overall um, amount of uh, the, the overall level of taxation to 65% headline. So there are in investment incentives, um, but those the point that keeps getting made here is that, that those are no good to firms who have already made spent their money. They cannot claim those incentives back and are now, <clears throat> excuse me, they're now paying much more than they expected to do. So the economics of all their new oil fields that they've just brought online are totally skewed and perhaps aren't as economic anymore. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm just going to clear my throat there. So, uh, yeah, three main points uh, that we were told uh, that industry wanted to speak to the Chancellor about uh, during this roundtable this week. Uh, some firms obviously will have more specific things, but three kind of headline. One on uh, investment incentives. So at the moment, you know, if somebody was to bring on a new oil field, they would get 91 pence return for every pound they spend. Um, but that investment incentive doesn't seem to cover things like carbon capture and storage and electrification, these kind of key low emission, you know, uh, technologies that we're going to need to hit our climate targets. It doesn't seem to cover that. So there's there's a question about whether or not that we can extend these investment incentives to cover that as well. There's a question about whether or not firms will be allowed to, ca to carry forward their losses made on decommissioning for tax reliefs. That's kind of the normal case, but they can't do it under this energy profits levy. Uh, and there's some there was an ask about whether or not that's going to happen. It seems that the Chancellor was pretty much not going to happen uh, in this roundtable on that. Um, and there was also a, seeking some clarity on the, the sunset clause for the levy. They say it's going to wind down in 2025. Apparently, Rishi Sunak kind of reiterated that. There is still quite a lot of uncertainty about whether... Because Rishi Sunak said it would be 2025 when it winds down or when oil and gas prices return to historically normal levels. And nobody really knows what that means. And we did get the chance to speak to him. And uh, he basically said it's it's tricky to put a figure on it. Um, but it seems to be in the 60, yes, <laughs> the 60 to $70 mark. Uh, so, um, you know, how quickly would it wind down? I mean, if oil dropped tomorrow, and we've seen rapid drops in oil, probably not like within 24 hours, but, you know, we've seen very rapid drops in oil price due to, you know, um, massive macroeconomic events um, such as COVID. So if the oil price dropped dramatically tomorrow, would that mean the windfall tax drops tomorrow as well? Uh, you know, in terms of putting things in black and white, it's a bit unclear. So... Basically, uh, the Chancellor had this meeting with the, the great and the good of the North Sea uh, this week. Um, and it, it would seem that, you know, 
perhaps from his position, it's a case of I'm showing uh, myself to be speaking to the industry. Uh, I have done my photo op. Um, whereas the industry is very much, from what we've been told anyway, is very much in the lines of, no, 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 no. Um, we've now set out our concerns. The ball's in your court. You have some time now to address this before the full legislation is published in July. It's a very, it's a closing window, um, but it is a window nonetheless. So um, we'll see what, hap what happens there. But I mean, uh, yeah, I think... I think there's some some questions about certainly the investment incentives. You know, if if you want these companies to invest in carbon capture and storage, as the government has said, um, then you've got to apply those investment incentives so that we can address the economics. Um, you know, it, it, I think there's a lot of questions about unintended consequences of the levy that perhaps were not addressed when this was kind of drafted up um, last month, um, particularly, I think it was amid the hoo-ha of Partygate, um, <laughs> you'll recall. So, yeah, some, some questions about that, some questions about the unintended consequences, but, um, yeah, the, the ball is in the, in the Chancellor's court. I mean, as is always the case with government policy, I think it's uh, what is not seen as the, uh, almost as, as important as what is seen with the, with the impacts of these things. So, I mean... I was trying to recall, is this one of the first times Sunak has been up in Aberdeen speaking to the oil and gas industry? Mm. I couldn't think, and nothing else jumped, jumped out, and I'll give them the benefit of the doubt in that for the best part of two years, people weren't really travelling around for work, so maybe he was hosting regular Zoom calls. But um, but no, I, th I thought it was, I, th I think it's the first time he's been up, which perhaps um, suggests that he's... On the way, charm offensive, I think was the word I used in the piece yesterday. So I'll stick with that. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, this this meeting was meant to be kind of like, uh, or initially anyway, it was meant to be secret before they put the press releases out. But I think it was the FT that got wind of it first. Um, but yeah, it, it, there was there's always press releases and that going out. Uh, yeah, I think it might be the first time he's been up. Um, whether or not he's held meetings in London, I don't know. Uh, but certainly, Greg Hans, the um, the energy minister, in fairness to the uh, the government, um, I think he's been up in Aberdeen about four times. I'm sure he said during a conference recently. And obviously, the the UK government has has had historically quite a lot of criticism for previous energy ministers uh, not making the effort to get up to Aberdeen. So uh, we can't level that against Greg Hans anyway. And and Hamish, you had some fun with Greg Hans this week. Um, but uh, that that sounded <laughs> weird, didn't it? That sounded really weird. Uh, he had some uh, interview no debacles with Greg Hans. <laughs> Yeah, um, I was penciled in to speak to him at ten thirty on the, the the Wednesday of Global Offshore Wind. Waited an hour, and Greg Hands he he pied me, Mate. he stood me up, pied by hands. Yeah, it's not very so good. I've got some time in the diary with him for next week. So uh, okay. that's the main thing. We are getting it just to zero off because I mean one of the big things we we're looking to ask about was this uh, whether investment relief whether he thinks it should be uh, widened to cover. Platform electrification, CCS, and the like, um, because it's mm. still a great deal of uncertainty about the bill. And what are we now? Just over a month since it was um, since it was published. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think I, uh, well, yes, definitely ask about that. That'll be interesting <laughs> to hear. I think from from what I got from the 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 meeting um, or what I heard about the meeting is it seemed like Sunak had acknowledged those concerns about the uh, investment incentives for CCS and the like. No promises were were made. Um, you might make a, a point about, you know, do you really expect any promises to be made at a roundtable meeting like this? 
I suppose not. But, um, you know, and I think there were some questions about whether was he, was he really going to throw the dog a bone um, at a meeting like this too. I, I didn't really get the sense about that. It sounds like the best thing he said was reiterating that it will wind down in 2025, uh, as previously said, um, you know. I, I, I suppose he doesn't necessarily know who's going to be, you know, who's going to be calling the shots at that particular time. So uh, you could make a point around that. But as far as as far as he can control it, it sounds like twenty twenty five is indeed the the target for it winding down. Um, but yeah, some big questions about that. I think it sounds like one of the main concerns for some of the bigger players, uh, the ones that are most exposed. Harbor Energy is the obvious kind of one to point to. I mean. You know, and Linda Cook, their CEO, has uh, publicly spoken about uh, the well. Harbour Energy has publicly spoken about the deep concerns they have about this lev- levy. Uh, the Guardian got wind of a letter, I believe, that Linda Cook sent the Chancellor uh, recently uh, as well. But, but basically, uh, it, it's the that point again that a lot of companies have kind of spent their cash, they've allocated capital on the expectation that the investment regime would be stable. Yeah. Um, what we've had in the past, you know, somebody somebody said to me, it's quite a depressing timeline when you look at, you know, the North Sea transition deal signed last year. Then you've got like the, the British energy security strategy this year. Four weeks later is a windfall tax. So you've got within the space of about a month them saying, let's, you know, let's focus on prioritizing North Sea oil and gas. Let's get that investment going. And then they put up, they kind of sh- surprise everyone with a windfall tax. It doesn't really scream stable stability. And then you've got the likes of, you know, Norway. Norway's a, a much higher um, tax rate. Um, but the thing is, they know they're not going to change the goalposts. Uh, I think Norway is actually consulting on changes to the tax rate right now, but they're, they're you know, very dramatic, you know, very firmly consulting with industry about it. There's a lot of discussion. Um, and ultimately, if you've got a country with a stable tax regime, then that will probably sway investors because they're they're interested in returns and they're interested in stability at the end of the day. I don't think it's so much, you know, um, uh, pride in investing in the UK or anything like that. So I, I don't know. So anyway, anyway. Um, so we will probably leave that there, but we will stay with Norway uh, and we'll head off to uh, Hamish, who's been talking to Equinor about uh, the Rosebank project. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, Hamish, so uh, tell us a bit about what you've been uh, up to in the past few days. Yes, most recently, I was up at the P&J Live yesterday, grabbing a chat with a nice chat with Arne Gertner. The Equinor's North Sea boss. Uh, that was ahead of their supply chain events, all about the opportunities arising from Rosebank, the uh, the West of Shetland's uh, major West of Shetland project. Uh, and this comes after there has been a bit of speculation. I think it was only Monday. I think it came out that Equinor was reconsidering its plans for Rosebank mm. uh, in the light of the windfall tax that we've just uh, heard so much about. So obviously that was the um, 
the first of the questions, pretty much. Yes. Um, and he kind of said that the event, the event that they were holding, um, had around 250 attendees from some 140 companies, was a clear example of Equinor's commitment to developing Rosebank. Um, he asked about that speculation that was in the Telegraph. Um, I think the, the official line was Equinor has privately said that Rosebank is under review, but they've not done so publicly. Uh, and Anna said that that was reports were uh, just a bit of speculation. He did go on to say, though, that this is an awfully complex project with long-term investment, development and engineering. As it is with every investment we make anywhere in the world, we want to see that they are not at risk. That's when we look to the fiscal frameworks. Obviously, the fiscal frameworks have changed. So even if they are not um, shelving the project for the minute, it would certainly be um, astute of them. Or you would certainly imagine that they are having a look at the financials now because why wouldn't you yeah um i think there's a point there i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna just make a point about that uh, i think you know when you hear like a shell or a bp saying you know we're reviewing our investment off the back of the windfall tax of course they are it'd be stupid not to it's a change in the regime uh, a change in the tax rate how would they not review their plans it doesn't necessarily mean that you know they're going to you know, pull out of it, right? So, uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And I thought I thought I would just interrupt you there, Hamish. And I think you're. Let me continue your your train of thought. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it's just quite interesting as well because after the windfall tax, and obviously there was that investment relief announced to it, it's up to I think it was about 90, what, 91p back for every pound. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah around that, and a, a lot of analysts were saying that developments like Rosebank could actually benefit because of that. Um, Kind of incentivize companies to spend. I think Cambo was also flagged as a, another potential beneficiary of that that measure. So, um, I mean, kind of the bottom line is who really knows? It says, as it stands, everything is progressing with Rosebank, as Equinor said, FID early next year. Um, also asked Arna about whether he thought Rosebank could become the next Cambo nearby. They're pretty similar, big developments. Um, and he said, we will show the benefits that such an industrial project brings to the region. And hopefully that resonates with key decision makers. Now, environmental groups aren't key decision makers, but if you can convince them about the benefits of the project, then he's the world's greatest salesman. So, <laughs> so uh, good luck on that one. But um, that kind of led us onto a bit of chat about platform electrification the need to make sure that any oil producer in the UK North Sea has done so in a way that's certainly below the worldwide average so that it, it can justify offsetting imports. Um, and Equinor is very much at the, the forefront of decarbonisation efforts. Um, High Wind Tampon is nearing completion. Trollwind was recently announced um, to use uh, offshore wind to power oil and gas assets. It's something that Equinor is looking to take elsewhere and it kind of fits nicely both from a timing and environmental perspective in the UK. So those are certainly options that are being considered for Rosebank. Um, no kind of hard and fast solution has been decided upon yet. I think they're keeping their options open and they've got time to do so, obviously, with FID not till next year. Um, but yeah, Intog is coming up as well, which also you would think the timelines add up rather nicely for that. Equinor missed out on Scotland too, um, perhaps surprisingly. So yeah, you do the maths. I mean, it seems like that's going to be a, a rather ducks getting into a row rather nicely. I think. Yeah, I think I think Intog is going to be the uh, a really interesting one to watch um, because that's going to be 
really, I think people aren't aren't paying enough attention to it because that's going to be the precursor mm-hmm. to Scotland. That's going to be what's going to get the Scottish supply chain up and running and hopefully get a few of these uh, assets electrified uh, ahead of time. Uh, I think it's going to be some great connection issues, uh, it sounds like. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that applies. Yeah, I spoke to, um, well, we're doing a, 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 an ONS Norway supplement for August. And I just this week spoke to Equinor's uh, kind of senior advisor for new energies for that. And they were talking a lot about Trollwind and high wind tampon and all the rest of it. It sounds like some really interesting, innovative uh, ideas there to uh, decarbonize, uh, you know, uh, some of the assets over in Norway, uh, and as 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 we all know, um, Norway is well ahead of the curve when it comes to uh, decarbonizing things versus where we are here in the UK. So if anyone can do it, uh, you would hope uh, it would be Ecuador that can kind of make that case and get uh, you know get this electrification piece going. Uh, Damon, how how does this play out in, in in Southeast Asia? I mean, is there any you know concerns around, or are there? Of course, there are concerns. Is there a similar concerns or I guess moves around decarbonizing assets as we're kind of seeing up in the North Sea and and in the Norwegian sector? Yeah, I think that there are concerns certainly about the operators' license to operate. Um, all the big players are pulling out the region, so it leaves uh, smaller independent companies such as Jadestone Energy, as we touched on earlier. And um, the trouble is getting finance because because of all the ESG concerns around the assets. So they have to come up with an ESG story and a, and a story about how they're going to lower carbon emissions. I mean, we're not. I don't think we're at the point where platform electrification is is going mainstream here, and we're probably. We're, you know, we're only, we're probably ten years behind on CCS compared to where the UK is now. But, but you know, there's there's small noise about it, and um, and and we're slowly starting to to see the need for that, especially in terms of license to operate and and to get finance really. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I think that well that that resonates very much with what we've seen here in the UK. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting seeing uh, just how far the UK can move because when we've got we've got what we've we've got to hit i think it's 50 percent emissions reduction by 2030 um which isn't very far away um uh i think i think the industry is pretty calm about some more um I think I think the, the I'm not entirely sure what the other targets are by 2025 and 2027, but they're more kind of incremental. I think it's like 25 percent perhaps by 2027. Um, I think the industry is more or less happy about that. I think the the low hanging fruit, if you like, has been has been picked uh, in most of the assets. Um, but yeah, I think I think that 50 percent by 2030 is going to be a real. Um, it's going to be a real struggle for some uh, projects. Obviously, Rosebank is, specifically is a new development, so hopefully they can kind of tailor that to 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 an electrification piece. I think that's pretty much the plan, isn't it, Hamish? I believe so, and they've got the NARA FPSO lined up to, to produce the field. I'm not sure about that capabilities to be hooked up to a to, a, to floating wind or the like, but... Hmm. Mm-hmm. I, it would seem feasible to me. It's interesting that it has taken off so much more in Norway because I, I believe that, that they do have a higher tax regime, but their investment relief is also similarly high from um, what Will Webster was saying at a recent government committee. So perhaps that is a good driver behind the platform electrification. And if you, it seems like a pretty clear uh, justification for, for rolling it out to, to new energies here in, in CCS and, and floating offshore wind um, in floating offshore wind and to power assets. So hopefully that would be 
if it does get in- incorporated into the bill, would be something that would um, would benefit and speed up from it. I mean, Intog and the, and the rounds were kind of loosely mentioned at a Global Offshore Wind conference this week. Michael Matheson was speaking down there, so he was uh, highlighting the the opportunities there and really kind of putting a lot of pressure is perhaps not the right word, but a lot of onus on the industry that it can't make the same mistakes again, yeah. which is something he has said before, um, and, and rightly so, because obviously there's been plenty of mistakes made in Scotland's offshore wind journey in the last decade. So he was uh, he was kind of delivering that as a challenge. He called for grid reform, which you mentioned as well, Alistair, which is going to be a, a really big issue. Um, there are committees and action groups and task force looking into it, but as is the way with often a lot of these things, they might not get solved until the problems actually crop up. Um, so we shall see. But yeah, no, good week at Global Offshore Wind on a side note. Interesting. Weather was lovely. Manchester's great. Turns out Nine Inch Nails were playing on Monday. I miss them. could have gone to see them, but I didn't, didn't get tickets. So You didn't fancy pairing, pairing a bit of Global Offshore Wind conference with Nine Inch Nails. I mean, look, you do you. And here we are. Back now. Well, and back in Aberdeen, back, back to Earth with a bump. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I think that in that case, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you very much to Damon and to Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com. Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.